You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Is it ever appropriate to eat wheat or grains? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by John Dooliard, who has written a book, Eat Wheat, which would seem to be in direct conflict with the first book I wrote uh, in New York Times bestseller, which is The No Grain Diet. So I thought it would be fun to have him on and hear his side of the story. And uh, interestingly, you would think there'd be a lot more conflict than there is, but there's probably 90 to 95% similarity in what our reviews are. So welcome and thank you for joining us, John. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Good to be here. So uh, just to give a little backstory too, this is not the first time we've met. We were actually in India about 10 years ago, maybe 12. Do you remember the date? It was, it was around there. It was, it's been a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that's the last time we actually met in person. And uh, it was an interesting adventure. I'm not sure I ever want to go back to India, but uh, <laughs> picked up some parasites there that I shouldn't have. It's an endurance event for sure. Yes, indeed. But it was a lovely country. The people are just really fantastic. So I really enjoyed the experience, no question. But you now, can you describe your clinical professional experience? Uh, background and then what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, um, I'm a chiropractor. And uh, in 1986, I went to India actually for a two-week vacation, ended up trying to learn and study their traditional medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, ended up staying there for a year and a half. Uh, I met Deepak Chopra there, came back, ran his center for eight years and uh, have been teaching Ayurvedic medicine uh, since then. And what I do actually for a living is I take the ancient principles of, uh, of uh, medical practice, Indian, uh, Chinese, and take those principles that have been used, time-tested for thousands of years, and then find modern science to back them up. And I put the two together. So kind of what I try to do is take ancient wisdom and modern science and put it together. And uh, one of the things we've been doing for quite a long time, actually, is, is eating grains. And, uh, and there's a lot of science on the other side of the aisle that people haven't heard of. And there's a lot of science saying, wheat is a poison and grains are terrible, but there is also science saying that it actually is beneficial. And, and uh, so I wrote the book, Eat Wheat, because for 30 years, I've been in practice and I've watched people, you know, 30 years ago, I was treating Epstein Barr and chronic fatigue and candida. First thing you do is tell them, hey, get off wheat and dairy. They feel better for six weeks. And then six weeks later, they come back and their problems are back. They say, well, get off of meat or get off of, get, become a vegetarian or a vegan or a raw foodist. And you find that Again, we keep kicking the problem down the road, never really dealing with the underlying problem, which is our global inability to digest, hard to digest foods, which is as a result of a, of a diet of processed foods and pesticides and environmental pollutants that, and there's good science to show that that's literally broken down our digestive system, particularly the microbes and the enzymes that help us break down wheat. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, thank you for that explanation. And uh, you had mentioned that uh, we've been eating grains for quite some time, and I think you referenced a specific uh, subspecies of humans that we've been shown to be eating grains or wheat-type grains a few million years ago, and that seems to be in conflict with what typically paleo teaches, which suggests that grains were a recent innovation in farming and agriculture, and that 
our ancient ancestors were primarily hunter-gatherers and had a minimal amount of grain. So I wondered how you'd respond to that and frame your perspective. <clears throat> well, there was a study, and a handful of studies, one done at the University of Utah, and they found uh, gluten uh, in the teeth of ancient humans throughout Africa uh, 3.4 to 4 million years ago. And they also found that, that uh, these ancient humans could gather enough wheat berries in just two hours to feed them for an entire day. The entire continent of Africa was covered with grasslands, so it does make sense that, that if they can gather two, you know, in two hours enough wheat berries for the entire day, it's a lot easier to do that than try to chase down a woolly mammoth or a lion. And we didn't start hunting our own meat until about, and most agree, about 500,000 years ago. So we have you know, genetics for meat that are 500,000 years ago, years old. We have genetics for eating wheat and barley and gluten, you know, processed grains or product grains for 3.4 to 4 million years ago. So in a lot of ways, we have a lot more genetics for wheat than meat. And, and there's, you know, uh, David Lieberman wrote the book, uh, The Story of the Human Body, a Harvard researcher, Harvard professor. And his research showed that paleos, paleo, the Paleolithic period, they ate about 40, 35 to 45% of their diet as carbohydrates, including cereal, cereal grains. So I don't, you know, I think that it's true that we domesticated wheat about 10 to 12,000 years ago, but grains were, you know, pretty much covering the entire continent of Africa. It's hard to ignore. And there's also some research that shows that amylase, an enzyme that helps us break down wheat, that was a genetically, we genetically acquired around 2 million years ago, which is also, which also has allowed us, to, which, which coincides with our increasing uh, intake or consumption of grain. Terrific. Well, thank you for explaining that and put it into a proper perspective. I thought also it would be helpful for me to revise my position on grains so that we have a better framework for the, the rest of the discussion. When I wrote my book, The No Grain Diet, uh, literally 13 years ago, um, I was it was primarily as a response to uh, seeking to help people normalize their insulin levels. And I still think that's important. But now my position is more refined. And really, it's even though insulin is still a crucial, important part of that, it's more about optimizing mitochondrial function. And as a result of that, regaining the ability to burn fat as your primary fuel, which my guess 90 to 95, which I suspect you're in complete agreement with, Completely. 90 to 95% of the people watching this are not able to do. So as a result, I think it's still wise for most people to avoid grains and pretty much most all carbohydrates and, and a really very small amount of carbohydrates, maybe under 50 to 20 grams a day until they're able to recapture their ability to burn fat as their primary fuel. Then I think grains can be enormously helpful as part of a healthy diet. And, and uh, I definitely want to delve into some of the um, details that you can do is I couldn't agree more with them. So maybe you can respond to the, my refined position on grains. No, I, I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think they're, you know, in 1960, when they took cholesterol out of our diet, they replaced it with these processed, bleached, deodorized, refined oils that are completely indigestible. When you walk down the grocery store aisle and all those yellow clear bottles with oil in it that have nothing in it that can go rancid, that are completely indigestible, that congest our liver and our gallbladder, which when you look at how we digest things, the liver and the gallbladder are the kingpin of digestion. The bile your liver makes, like a Pac-Man that gobbles up toxins and, and fats and, and, and environmental pollutants, when that is congested, you lose your ability to detoxify. The bile also buffers the acid in the stomach. So the stomach eats a bunch of wheat or dairy. It requires a lot of acid. But if there's no buffers from the bile because the liver has been congested because these processed foods, 
The stomach won't produce the acid, and therefore our ability to break down hard to digest foods breaks down. So as a result of years of processed foods, insidiously we have broken down globally our digestive system to the point where we really can't digest much of anything. And the, and the problem is, is that just taking wheat and grain out of the diet, and I agree with you, you first have to reset fat burning, and those processed foods stops us and inhibits us from doing that. But before we, 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 we uh, take the grains out, or, or in addition to taking the grains out temporarily, we must reset the digestive function because our, our digestion, our digestive system is the same system as our detoxification system. And we have 400 billion pounds of toxic chemicals dumped in the American environment every single year. There's mercury from the coal mine plumes from electrical power plants on every organic vegetable. You can't wash it off. So if you can't digest wheat and you once were able, and now you have issues, and I understand people when they eat it, they feel bad. And of course, why would you eat something you feel bad eating? But the reason why you're probably feeling bad eating wheat is not because, in my opinion, wheat is a bad grain or something wrong with it. It's because it's hard to digest. And as a result of that, we have issues with it. Plus, that means that we're not able to break down or digest or process or detox the environmental pollutants. So down the road, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we think, I got wheat out of my diet, I feel great. But there's underlying imbalances that are not being addressed that could cause real problems down the road. And that's why I'm saying, let's get the processed foods out of our diet. Let's eat, if we're going to eat grain, eat the right kind of grain. Let's get the organic foods, get the pesticides out of our diet, and let's reset our digestive function so we can then begin to enjoy bread in a moderate way. I mean, you know, one of the things we did, Dr. Mercola, was we've eaten, you know, grains, wheat in particular, three times a day for 50, 60 years in a processed version that does nothing but congest our, our ability to digest anything. And, and that has to be fixed. Whether we eat wheat or not is not really the main issue. The main issue is that that may be a symptom or a sign of something more important to address, and we're not doing that. We're just kicking the ball down the road. Hey, get wheat out of your diet. Take dairy out of your diet. Take all the hard to digest stuff out of your diet, and we think that we're better, but it's a temporary fix, setting us up for possible real problems down the road. Okay, I couldn't agree more, and uh, I'd like to dive in a little bit further uh, after we discuss what I think is the most, dive even further into the digestive issues and what you can do to resolve those and repair them and get that back to, to optimize them to normal. But I believe one of the most important digestive dysfunctions is a result of the introduction of Roundup, glyphosate being the primary ingredient, but the surfactants uh, make it I mean, a thousand times worse into our diet that started about 20 years ago. And uh, as a result of that, uh, the, um, uh, there, there's a disruption in the tight junctions in the cell membranes in the gut when you develop this leaky gut. And it's just devastating. And it doesn't have to just mean, mean you're eating organic wheat, uh, not eating organic. Most wheat, unless it's organic, is sprayed with Roundup as, a, as to dry it and help process it. So unless it's organic. But it doesn't matter where the Roundup comes from. It's still going to damage your cells. So I was very pleased to see you address that in the book because not many people are aware of this. And um, and then why don't you discuss your perspective on it, and then I'll, then I'll discuss a potential solution aside from just eating organic. Well, I think you're right. And I, and I did dig into that a little bit, the, the, the spraying of the wheat to help expedite its harvest and make it ripe faster and increase the yield. And it turns out that it's, it was happening for a period of time, but now it's happening much less. Maybe about 10% of the wheat is actually is that being done. However, Roundup is sprayed on so many things. And, and like you said, it drills holes in the intestinal tract, predisposes us to leaky gut, causes real problems. So 
So, you know, definitely you have to eat organically. And I would love to hear what, you, in addition to that, you would suggest to help people, you know, avoid, you know, the exposure to Roundup. Well, there is a, a <clears throat> relatively new product on the market. It's called Restore, R-E-S-T-O-R-E. Have you heard of that? No. Okay. It was developed by one of the most brilliant physicians I've ever had the opportunity to encounter, Zach Bush, who's a triple board certified MD, endocrinologist, and two other specialties. <laughs> but uh, he's developed this product because he's passionate about getting people healthy. And this actually repairs the tight junction dysfunction. So, um, wow. yeah, it's amazing stuff. So, obviously, the long-term solution is to to eat organic and avoid it. But Sometimes it's really hard to do, especially if you're eating out. I mean, unless you're going to fast, which is another great option that people tend to ignore. You don't have to eat all the time unless you're cachexic or, you know, you're, you're have terminal cancer. Then, you know, most of us have that option. So that, that's a, a solution that uh, many people can uh, avail themselves to. And it's relatively inexpensive. No, I'd like to look into that for sure. And I think that one of the things that I talk about in the book is is how we can, in fact, repair the epithelium of the intestinal tract. And there actually are some interesting studies, you know, showing that whole wheat versus refined wheat, significantly different. Whole wheat has a significantly lower glycemic index, reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes significantly, reduces the risk of Alzheimer's uh, and dementia by 53% in one study. So uh, also, in, in another study showed that whole wheat versus refined wheat, which is really the, the problem is our refined processing of our foods, uh, has actually um, supported, the, increased the, the, the levels of good bacteria, bifidobacteria, as well as so, uh, support the tissue resistance in the epithelium, so protecting it against leaky gut syndrome. So, which is really interesting that whole wheat versus refined wheat has been shown to protect the intestinal skin and in one study even were supported uh, lack of, a decreased inflammation, pain, frequency, and distension in IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, when you start reading these studies, you're going, my goodness, you know, refined wheat and refined foods and processed foods are, are just terrible. But in a lot of ways, I think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater saying, hey, all grains, all wheat is really bad when there's really good science, lots of it showing that grains and whole grains and whole wheat are actually quite beneficial. And, you know, I mean, the Mediterranean diet, the mind diets, we still think those are some of the best diets. And those are diets that people eat two to three servings of grains and whole wheat on a regular basis. So, so, and when you look at our ancient ancestors who ate that grain, some of those early humans were eating grains 35 to 40% of their diet as grain. Uh, so it's like, so it just, when I started reading the research and, and looking into this, I was like, gosh, you know, this is a $16 billion industry now, the gluten-free diet, the gluten-free industry. And that's, you know, sort of what happened in, in 1960 when the sugar industry paid off the, uh, the Harvard research to, to blame heart disease on, on cholesterol and, and not sugar. And we changed our diet completely and had all these processed foods and processed fats to extend shelf life. And cause, and really, we're digging out of the result of that today, which is obesity, diabetes, depression, and a global breakdown of our digestion. And we're still today digging out of that. I'm going, my goodness, are we doing the same thing with grains and wheat, saying all grains are bad? You know, there's science, there's interesting science, Dr. McCullough, that I, that, and I didn't write in the book because it sort of came out afterwards. There was one study that showed that people who actually eat or are gluten-free have four times as much mercury in their blood as people who actually eat wheat. People who are gluten-free 
have less good bacteria and more bad bacteria in their guts than people who eat wheat. People who eat, are gluten-free are actually shown to have more, less killer T cells, a measure of immunity, than people who eat wheat, suggesting that these hard-to-digest foods, the lectins and the phytic acids, which, which yeah, science says they're hard to digest and they have problems, but there's other science say that there's actually some benefit in some of these things. And there's a theory, and you probably know about it, called the hygiene hypothesis theory, which is where certain irritants and poisons in our foods, like tomatoes have tomatanes and, and, and uh, potatoes had uh, solanines, which are poisonous, and they're a big part of our diet today, and they're still there. But those irritants have been shown to be immune stimulants for, stimulants for our immune system. The Amish people have the lowest rates of asthma on the planet. The kids do. They run around the barns with bare feet. They have cows as pets. And their, their genetic relative, the heterites, the Mennonite farmers who became you know, sterilized urban farmers, have, found, have the highest rates of asthma. And they measured the dust in their air, and they found out the dust had irritants for the respiratory tract to trigger an immune response. So what we're beginning to see is that, you know, we sterilize our diet, taking every, all the, kill all the bad bugs that we can find. We take all the hard to digest food out of our diet. Our ability to digest anything hard has become compromised, so we take it out because we don't feel good doing it. But then we see signs showing that, hey, our immune system is being compromised as a result of this. And some of these irritants are showing to be stimulants for the immune response. And that was my concern. You know, not only we're we not fixing the digestive problem, putting ourselves, expo exposing ourselves to 400 billion pounds of toxic chemicals, which would take us out in 20, 30 years. But we're, we're also, you know, dealing with issues where there's, there's toxins and, uh, and environmental pollutants that can really take us out. Sure. Yeah. And the process that you describe is actually given a formal scientific name. It's called hormesis. So that when you've given these poisons in small amounts, the, the poison is actually in the dose, actually. So if you get a small enough amount, it actually builds you up somewhat similar to exercise, you know, because excessive exercise could be pretty dangerous, too. But Definitely. in the proper amounts, it actually rebuilds your body. So how would so, you explain? I'd love to hear your take on it, because that's something that really took me took me back when I saw the study showing that, boy, but I always would say, you know, it doesn't matter if you eat wheat or not or grains or not, but fix the digestive system. But now I'm going, you know, we've been eating it for almost 4 million years. Do we have a genetic need for these types of irritants to trigger our immune system? The science is pointing in that direction. I'd love to hear your response. I totally respect what you have to say. Well, I appreciate that. But I, before I can give it, I'd really need to know more details about the study, which is okay. my next question, because it was curious to me that people who are gluten-free, you know, I need to see the methods of what the specific type of diet they're eating, because yeah. just because you're eating gluten, I mean, you could there could be a subset of people who are eating 100% processed junk foods, right. and they would be they would be gluten. So I don't know how they differentiated it, but, <clears throat> but without knowing that, generally, my guess is that it's optimizing the microbiome by all these varieties of different fibers and you improve the microbiome, which you do address in your book, you're going to improve health. I mean, that is really the essential. I think it was Hippocrates. Was it Hippocrates? Is it the, the, it begins in the gut. Well, one of the studies, just real quick, showed that there was, you know, people who are, who are celiac, who had been on a gluten-free diet, people who were celiac who hadn't started a gluten-free diet, and people who are not celiac. And the people who are uh, who are who had just become celiac, not on a gluten-free diet, and people who were who are not celiac uh, had four times less mercury in their blood than the people who were celiac and were on the gluten-free diet. And that was one of the studies. And I can send you those studies, and you can take a look at them. Um, but it's just sort of an interesting, you know, like wait a minute, you know, are we sterilizing our environment and our and our diet and our foods to the point where you know we already have in the last 50 years 
the amount of food we eat, the diversity of the food on this planet has reduced by 56%. So we're already starting to eat less and less foods, therefore creating less you know, microbial diversity, which is such a big deal. And you know that every season, the bugs in the soil change from one season to the next to the next. And I read an amazing study um, that showed that when deer eat, eat bark in the winter, they have certain microbes to be able to digest the bark. When they eat leaves in the summer, they have different microbes to be able to digest the leaves. But if they ate bark in the summer, they wouldn't have the right microbes and it would cause a level of indigestion. It could literally kill the deer. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I wrote a book called The Three Season Diet years ago about eating with the seasons. But when I, when I, when I heard that, I was like, this is really important. And it's our way of eating organic whole foods to reset and restore a microbiome. And we know that in the fall, there's enzymes like amylase that increase in the fall and the winter that decrease in the spring and the summer that are specifically designed to help us digest things like grains, which just happen to be harvested in the fall and the winter. So when you think about, well, maybe we're supposed to eat these grains at the right time of the year, as opposed to eating everything all day long, three times a day in a processed form, which we can't digest, and that we're part of the circadian rhythm of nature. And we've completely lost that. There are studies that show that humans have lost their connection to the circadian cycles. And birds fly south, whales migrate. Our survival also depends on us being connected to those rhythms of nature. Part of that is what we eat. So I actually publish for free a, a monthly grocery list, superfood list, and recipe list for people to eat. We eat seasonal food in January and February and March and April for every month of the year because I just feel like it's such an important thing for people to know, hey, this is in season. If I get it organic, it's going to have that seasonal set of microbes that I can build into my body so I can you know, have better immunity in the winter and decongest in the spring and dissipate heat in the summer in a better way. And I think that's a piece of the puzzle that uh, it makes it subtle, but it's, a, again, one of those insidious, cumulative things that we've just completely ignored. And if deer die when they eat out of season, does that mean we just get to eat whatever we want whenever we want? I, I don't think so. So where can people obtain a copy of that list? Um, if you go to my, my website at lifespa.com on my homepage, there's a banner. It's called the three season diet challenge. You just sign up for it at lifespa.com and, uh, you get that on your inbox for free every month. It's a pretty, really cool service. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for providing that. And, uh, one of the, uh, I believe you still live, live in Colorado, Boulder. Is yes. that where you're living? Yep. So, you know, the, the, so that's, uh, high up in the mountains and at this time of year that we're recording this interview that you're not going to be able to grow much food there unless you've got a greenhouse. Uh, so I'm wondering, it would seem to me that to optimize your health, to live in a more of a subtropical environment where you can grow food. Like I've moved down to Florida once I appreciated this and, and grow a big portion of my food. But I think that is the key because if you could just harvest and eat the fruit, like I'm just, it's, it's the middle of January and I'm still harvesting mulberries. And, uh, you know, so mulberries are probably good if they're growing here for me, but maybe they're not at other times of the year. So um, I'm wondering if that seasonal approach that you're in the three season diet, I mean, has a big variation depending on your location. It, it, it surely does. And people are saying, what? Three seasons are supposed to be four. And of course, in nature, there's there's three growing seasons, spring and a summer and a fall harvest. And the winter is a dormant season, so nature always takes a rest. So we call it the three season diets because we harvest three times of the year. Uh, grains like wheat, for example, is a grain that, uh, and these ancient humans was really interesting when they found the gluten in the teeth of the, these ancient humans. It wasn't green wheat berries or green. It was actually very, very ripe. So they didn't eat it when it was growing. They waited till the fall and they ate it when it was ripe, which was sort of interesting that that's when they ate it. 
and those grains will actually stay and last through the winter. So the harvesting those grains in the fall, fermenting your foods in the fall for your vegetables are traditional ways that people actually did get cheeses, things like that, or how people survive the winter by getting a, a dose of good micro, uh, you know, bacteria as well as you know, getting the, the nutrition from certain vegetables and grains throughout the year. And of course, we would eat a higher protein and a higher fat diet, sort of a more paleo-ish diet at that time of the year in the winter, because that's what's harvested, and more nuts and seeds and grains and meats and stews and soups, and more leafy greens and sprouts and berries in the spring and fruits and vegetables in the summer. So the diet would change dramatically from sort of high protein and high fat in the winter to, you know, low fat in the spring to high carb fruits and vegetables in the summer. And, uh, and that's something we just generally don't do. And if you get a little grocery list and stick it in your purse and you shop along that way, you start to bring more of those foods into your diet. And, and that, along with rebooting in the digestive system um, and trying to clean your diet up and being eating organically, can help people reboot their strength of their digestion so they can begin to break bread again in a, in a, in a form that is... You know, that has the ingredients on real bread, has ingredients of whole wheat, salt, water, and an organic starter. Period. It takes three days to bake that bread, where the bread in the supermarket takes two hours. So, and that bread will never go hard. It just sits there and stays soft forever because of those oils they stick in there that we can't digest. That breaks down our ability to, to, to digest these hard to digest foods. Okay, great. So you have a major portion of your training. In addition to being a chiropractor, you've probably had more experience in Ayurvedic medicine. And uh, yeah, I don't do chiropractic anymore. I pretty much, you know, write and teach and, and uh, prove ancient wisdom with modern science. That's my sure, but, it, but chiropractic training does provide a good basic science framework oh, sure. to establish and put these things into perspective. So, uh, in, in your book, Eat, Eat Wheat, you discuss a few Ayurvedic principles to improve your digestive system, which is what I wanted to go in now because there are some solid suggestions that you have that can help people repair and recover their ability to digest these foods. So in addition to being able to burn fat, you still have to repair your digestive system. So why don't you discuss some of those strategies? But two things. Yeah, two things. And, you know, I think you're so right on, and I couldn't agree with you more about helping to reset our ability to burn fat as a culture. And when people are eating meals, three, you know, eating meals, breakfast, you know, meal, snack, meal, snack, meal, snack throughout the day. They're burning the meal and the snack and the meal and the snack, and they never actually have the ability to burn their own fat. And, and so the way we help the body be a better fat burner is to give the body a reason to burn fat. Have breakfast, nothing till lunch, lunch, nothing till supper, supper, nothing to bed. In between those meals, the body's forced to burn its fat. So that's key. And science shows that if you eat a bigger lunch and a lighter supper, you actually burn that fat in a, in a more efficient manner. You lose weight more efficiently, you have better energy and mood stability as a result of becoming a better fat burner. So first rule, golden rule is, you know, again, back to the rhythms of nature, eating three meals a day, make lunch a bigger meal, supper comes from the word supplemental or soup. So try to eat smaller meals in the evening, the very best that you can. And then one of the things, like I said in the beginning, these processed foods have broken down our digestive systems in a way that we have to really reboot that health. And there are five spices I talk in the book, which are ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. So ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom are the five spices. And when you look at each of those five spices, the science shows that each of them have powerful digestive benefits, support digestive health. But when you put them all together, something sort of magical happens. This is an old ancient formula that has been used for thousands of years to reboot digestion. 
And, you know, when we have a digestive problem, we say take some hydrochloric acid, take some digestive enzymes. Mm -hmm. And like I said in the beginning, the bad fats have congested our liver linked to diabetes, depression, and obesity. And the inability for the liver and the bile to do its job. Gallbladder surgeries as a result of the number one surgery in America today. So we have to decongest the liver and the gallbladder. But as you probably know, the duct that takes the bile into the small intestine connects with the pancreatic duct before it enters into the small intestine in like 91% of the people. So that means that if your bile is thick and viscous from the processed foods, your pancreatic enzymes aren't going to get there either. And then we say, well, just take pancreatic enzymes and I'll solve your problem. And as a result of having no bile, which is a buffer for the acid, as is the pancreatic enzymes, the stomach will say, hey, there's no buffers down here for all this acid. I'm not going to make any acid. And if I do, I'm going to burn a hole through my stomach and cause heartburn and indigestion, which is why we have heartburn and indigestion is because of bile flow congestion, thick, viscous bile. So we want to decongest the bile ducts. So instead of saying, here, take hydrochloric acid for the lack of fire, take pancreatic enzymes for the for the pancreas, why don't we rotor rear out the bile ducts, reboot the digestive fire naturally? And these five spices have been shown in the studies, and I cite them in the book, to reboot the production of your own hydrochloric acid, digestive enzymes, pancreatic enzymes, duodenal enzymes, increase bile flow naturally your own, as opposed to taking bile salts or bile acids on your own. And that's what I really love. At the end of the day, we're not dependent on a pill or a powder. We're truly resetting function for people so they can get on these herbs, whatever, get on, get better, and get off, and begin to live a lifestyle that's self-sufficient and not, you know, just kicking the real problem down the road, giving us pe temporary symptomatic relief, and setting ourselves for, for real problems, you know, as we, as we get older. And as we get older, you know, we become less resilient anyway. And if we have, you know, underlying problems we haven't really addressed, they can take us out. And that's just not where I want to take my patients. All right. So fennel, ginger, cardamom, uh, cumin, and, and coriander. Curcumin. Curcumin. No, no. no. Cumin. 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 Okay. cumin and coriander, fennel, and cardamom, cardamom, and ginger. What's the, what's the best way to get those? Is there like <clears throat> a prepackaged supplement you can take or do you want to just get the actual herbs? Because I mean, I, I have black cumin seeds every day. I take about a tablespoon and I soak them overnight and put them in a smoothie. Um, but, Which is a great, great. Well, but, but is there is it important to combine all these herbs together at once, or they can be taken throughout the day? The sort of the magic of ancient wisdom is they understood, uh, like turmeric, for example. They put turmeric with black pepper, sixteen parts turmeric, one part black pepper, increased the absorption of the turmeric by two thousand percent. When you take cumin, coriander, fennel, ginger, and cardamom together, they they amp up each other's benefits. Mm -hmm. So how you combine these herbs? You know, is we just have lost that concept completely. And and of course, I have a formula called Gentle Digest, which is those those herbs put together. But also, people can buy those spices and spice their food and cook with it, put it in their smoothies. There's many 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 ways that you can take it. But I think all those spices together have a a, a more potent sort of upper digestive reset function that you don't get when you take them individually. Okay, so ideally take them together. And what is the timing? And what it, what it sounds like it would be ideal to take with every meal, or at least every significant meal. And then how long do you need to take them before you your digestive system tends to reboot and recover? Or is it something you, you need to take for the rest of your life? Well, you could. I mean, those are so gentle. People have been spicing with those spices forever as, as in every meal in traditional culture. So they're that kind of thing where you don't become dependent on them. They actually continue to support digestion, but generally to reset digestion, people can start, you know, being better digesters and better detoxifiers. It takes about two to three months for that to happen. 
Uh, and you can you can take it as a as a capsule before the meal, which is generally how I recommend it. It's a lot easier. Or you can spice with it. You can make a tea out of it and drink it with the meal. Or you can actually cook with it. Either way. Okay. Thanks. And just um, picking your brain from the Ayurvedic perspective, I'm wondering if you could expand on the black cumin and also black sesame, which I also take a tablespoon every day uh, after I soak overnight. So uh, can you define the, or explain the difference between black sesame and regular sesame and also black cumin and regular cumin? Well, um, black, I'm not so sure about black sesame in, in, in the difference between black sesame and sesame. I know sesame generally has loads and loads of vitamin E, which is sort of very interesting Ayurvedically where they did a study where they found that putting uh, sesame oil on your skin will actually deliver vitamin E into the tissues as well as taking a pill. Um, so, and that's one thing that Indian tradition and, and, and Asian cultures uh, would do is they put oil on their skin every day. And sesame was one of the major, major ones. Uh, cumin, uh, the, the, the black cumin, I think, is way more a potent medicine, where the regular cumin is more of a food that works <clears throat> with the body. I think black cumin is very, very potent. And, you know, but, but the cumin is a lot less, is more gentle. It's cooling and very easy on the digestion. I, and I always, I'm, I, when I think about these herbs that we take a lot today, the quality of the intestinal skin is so delicate. The epithelium is so delicate. <clears throat> the microbiome is so delicate. We have to be very careful how intensely we take these concentrated nutrition, like extracts of foods or grapeseed oils or grapeseed or oregano oils. They really can kill bad bugs, but they can be very harsh for the intestinal skin. So this approach is a much more kind and gentle way for the intestinal skin and therefore the microbiome, which is obviously really critical. Because there are microbes in your mouth, esophagus, small stomach, small and large intestine, specifically designed to make enzymes to help us break down the gluten and the gelatins in wheat. Pesticides will kill those. Processed foods will, will break down the environment, so the environment to support those breaks down as well. So we have to reboot that skin for sure. So uh, it sounds like that you use the regular cumin in your fiber. Right, not the black. Right. Not the black cumin. Okay. Well, good. So are there uh, other strategies that you can use? And you have actually you do. There are. You list a number of them in your book. So why don't you discuss some of the others? Well, a couple of the big ones I think is going to the liver and the gallbladder, which is really critical. And and the, the thing about that is the lack of bile flow and increasing our ability to handle fast. You know, your, your gallbladder is a sack of bile that's 15 to 20 times concentrated. There's enough bile in there to eat the brains of a woolly mammoth, but we have been so congested, we, we can't even eat, you know, a, a little bit of fried food without having issues. Not to say that that's good for you, but we have the ability it, when we're functioning well to digest pretty much anything. And we've lost that ability and that's dangerous. So herbs, uh, foods like beets, beets have, uh, have betaine in it, they have um, natural nitrates that swell and open up the bile ducts and increase the flow of bile significantly. So beets, celery, apples, all of those are great bile movers, great for your smoothie. Beets, apples, and celery are a great way to start the day. I don't think you should have a 20-ounce glass of it, but a little bit of that with a meal. I'm a big fan of chewing our food, not drinking our food, but having that with a meal as concentrated nutrition to reboot and help your your gallbladder and your bile flow, which is really the kingpin of digestion. Your bile flow allows you to go to the bathroom. It regulates bowel movement function. It detoxifies you, scrubs your intestinal villi. 
it, it allows for the emulsifying of fats for delivering good fats to your brain and your body and getting rid of the bad fats and it buffers the acids from your stomach. Without that, we're, our, digestively, we're in really big trouble and that's exactly what these processed foods have done to us. So beets, uh, apples, celery, artichokes, absolutely phenomenal for increasing bioflow. Fenugreek, fenugreek tea and fennel tea. Fenugreek has been shown to increase the flow of bile by 75% in one study. So fenugreek, fenugreek tea, like we've heard the name, but people don't even really, it's a spice that was used for thousands and thousands of years regularly. Fennel as well, fantastic for the lymphatic system. We don't really use these. So those are some fennel and fenugreek tea, uh, you know, artichokes, uh, um, apples, celery, and beets. Phenomenal for that component of digestion, which has to do with your liver and your gallbladder. Okay, another aspect is to get the lymph moving, and you have a few different strategies. One is the mini trampoline, and then the other is an inversion table, So, which I'd like to have a dialogue with you about, but I want you to discuss the mini tramp first. Well, let's talk about, before I do that, if I could say sure. what the, how the lymph relates to the whole wheat, sure. and wheat issue. There's studies that show that when we don't break down the wheat and the, the dairy, the, the casein, the gluten uh, as well, it goes undigested from the stomach into the small intestine. And as a result of it being undigested, because the stomach acid is too weak, because there's no bile to buffer those acids, those proteins go undigested into, into the small intestine, and they're too big to get into the bloodstream. So they get uptaken and, 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 and enter into the collecting ducts of the lymphatic system. And they, the lymphatic system literally lines your entire intestinal tract. The lymphatic system is the biggest circulatory system of your body. It delivers baseline energy for you. In between meal energy is delivered by fats to the cells via your lymphatic system. It's your detoxification system of all the bad fats, and it is your carrier of your immune system. So when the lymph around the intestinal tract gets congested, and the, the intestinal tract will swell and you get bloated, the, the, the lymph can get so congested that it'll push those fats into the fat around the belly, causing belly fat. And this is good science to back all this up. There's lymph underneath your skin. When the lymph around your gut gets congested because of the poor digestion, these hard to digest proteins, those lymphs go into your skin, causes rashes and irritation of your skin, which is what we like to think of gluten-related grain issues. Recently discovered at the University of Virginia about two or three years ago, they found brain lymphatics called glymphatics that drain three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your brain every single year. And when those brain lymphs are congested because the gut lymphs, which is the lion's share of the lymph in the body, is congested and those brain lymphs can't drain, there now have been linked directly to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, infection, inflammation, and autoimmune conditions, all of which, including brain fog, is related to gluten-related you know, uh, you know, brain grain, which really brain drain issues. Our brain is not draining because the lymph. So we have a real problem in the lymphatic system because of weak digestion. And Dr. McCullough, there are volumes of studies about the lymphatic system in the journals that may never reach medical practice. And that's why when I look at the ancient wisdom principles, they use the lymph as their primary system of detoxification. Matter of fact, study of the lymph was the study of longevity. And then I fast forward and I look at the science and I go, oh my goodness, there's just volumes of science about the lymph and we bring the two together. And then you look at how a weak digestion allows the lymph to get directly congested and nobody's talking about that. 
So what if we were to turn the digestive fire back on, increase bioflow, heal repair of the intestinal skin, and decongest your lymphatic system so your brain can drain these toxins, which are directly linked to cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, dementia, the epidemics of our time. And autoimmune conditions, nobody has an understanding of even how they got here. And now we are looking at the biggest circulatory, circulatory system of your body being congested because of poor digestion, and nobody's talking about how to detoxify. And I give you specific techniques to how to do that, one of which beets are great bile movers, all your greens are. And here's the cool thing about your lymph. All the antioxidant therapies are also work through your lymphatic system. So your berries and your cherries and your blueberries, all of those, your mulberries, all of those work through your lymphatic system. So those are very, very valuable. In the spring and the summer, you get a lot of your berries, you got cranberries and beets in the fall and the winter. Uh, anything that would turn your white shirt red or diet, like when you spill it over yourself, those are going to be your lymphatic movers, uh, your leafy greens as well. And there's a handful of herbs like red root is a fantastic lymphatic mover. Um, um, there's an herb in Ayurvedic medicine called Mangista, a, a phenomenal lymphatic mover. And there's a handful that I talk about how to help really reboot and, re and, and support your lymphatic flow. And then, of course, there's movement, which is uh, we're both big fans of. Uh, you're a lifetime exerciser like myself. And, you know, ideally, most of us don't move enough and uh, and maybe unconsciously or unawareing, uh, unknowingly are committed to a, a, an office job or an environment where we're sitting so, so long. So movement is a regular part of that. And you have commented on the use of the rebounder and the inversion table. So why don't you discuss those? Well, you know, the lymphatic system is not connected to the heart. So your heart beats, pumps blood, but the lymph moves when we move. And the brain lymphs move when we sleep. Mm -hmm. So if we don't move enough during the day, then those big lymphs of your big muscles are trying to drain all the waste and toxins from those big muscles. They end up overwhelming the little minor lymphs that drain your brain and your central nervous system, which is not good for us. So our brain starts to lose the ability to drain very well. So movement and rebounding is very, very effective. The, the brain, the, the spine has what's called cerebral spinal fluid in it, which is basically lymphatic fluid that's in your spine and your brain. And it literally washes your brain of these toxins and dumps them into lymphatic vessels in your brain like a mohawk haircut, and then takes them out of your body. Nasal breathing, nose breathing, has been shown to increase the flow of cerebral spinal fluid in your brain and increase the flow of this brain lymphatic. So I wrote a book years ago called Body, Mind, and Sport about nasal breathing exercise. And when you breathe through your nose, it brings the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs where the parasympathetic, calm, repair, digest, supporting nervous system, uh, nervous system is. The upper chest is <gasps> bear in the woods, fight or flight receptors. So when you breathe through your mouth <gasps> 26,000 times per day, you're triggering 26,000 little emergency lymphatic congestion, disease producing, digestive turning off messages every single day. But when you breathe through your nose, you drive air into the lower lobes of your lungs and you activate a calm neurological response. And our research we did years ago found that when you breathe through your nose during exercise, it flips your brain into an alpha state. It decreases the fight or flight response significantly. It actually increases, it actually decreases the perceived exertion by 50%. So, so when, so the idea, which I was really fascinated about as an exerciser, an athlete years ago was the runner's high. How do athletes experience that, that zone, that calm? My best race is my easiest race. And when you breathe through your nose, you create a neurological calm, a brainwave coherence, a meditative state in your brain while you exercise. So when you then have to open your mouth, 
you know that you're going from repairing your body during exercise to breaking your body down to build yourself up. So how do people know how much exercise is good and how much more could be harmful to you? And the way you know is by breathing deeply in and out through your nose comfortably. And if you begin to start to have to breathe labored or have to open your mouth, you're going to a fight or flight emergency response. And since we're overwhelmed by 24-7 emergency stress, we have ways, 26,000 breaths per day, if you do it properly, to tell the nervous system of the body that life is not a, an emergency, a disease-producing emergency. And the benefit for your heart, because when you're breathing deeply, the rib cage becomes 12 levers massaging your heart and your lungs 26,000 times a day versus a cage squeezing down on your heart and your lungs. And what's right underneath your rib cage and your diaphragm is your, your digestive organs. And many times the, those digestive organs get tucked and stuck up underneath the rib cage and they cause a lot of indigestion. Hiatal hernia related issues are when the stomach gets pushed up and that it's one of the common things. Lots of women after pregnancy, that baby sticks that stomach, drives it up against the diaphragm. If you're not breathing deeply, you can get adhesions between your stomach and your diaphragm. And the stomach now stuck to the diaphragm and it really can't do its job. And slowly but surely, our ability to digest, produce acid begins to break down. So we can unravel all those things really gracefully. I tell you how to do it in the book. It's really simple, but, but it's really interesting how everything connects. All the pieces of the puzzle of the body, they work together. Your breathing works with your lungs and your heart, and the breathing and the ribcage works with the upper digestion. The, the, the receptors in the lower lobes of your lungs are parasympathetic. That means rest and digest. So another big reason why we should relax when we eat our food, because that allows the parasympathetic to, to, to activate and turn on the digestive system. <laughs> if we're eating on the run, gobbling our food down, it's a fight or flight response, and the digestive strength literally turns off. So those are some, and so exercise and using your nose as a breathing device. And if you have to breathe deeply in and out through your nose, if you feel yourself having to open up your mouth, you've gone into an emergency response and therefore dial it down, slow it back down, reset the calm and try to go faster again. And you will find, I worked with the New Jersey Nets. I, uh, I worked with Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, many tennis players. I worked with a lot of world-class athletes over the years, teach them how to nose breathe and how to be calm in the, in, in, in the face of stress. And as you know, Stress is the number one killer of our microbiome, number one killer of us in general. And if we can help our body handle stress 26,000 times a day just by breathing, which we got to do anyway, it's a good deal. Agreed. And uh, I remember you sharing that information with me about 10 years ago and integrating it into my uh, workout regimen and especially the high intensity workouts, which is a challenge and it took me a while to get it. But for the most part, I think it's really sound advice to restrict your exercise to the point where you're only breathing through your nose. And if you have to go faster or you have to use your mouth, it's a good sign, feedback from your body that you're you're actually probably causing more harm than, than good. So uh, thanks for that, those words of wisdom. I, ju I just want to address this anti-gravity boots that you mentioned in your book, too. Um, there is another chiropractor, you may know, his name is Francis Murphy, uh, who is really recognized as one of the leading experts in the world in the treatment of shoulder dysfunctions. Actually, I'm going to have him on the, an interview later this year. Um, and it's his contention that... Uh, uh, the inversion tables are okay, but if you go beyond 30 degrees from horizontal, that and if you do it long for long periods of time, for uh, it can actually cause more harm than good. Also, just like exercising too much, and that it could be uh, cause damage to your spine and actually cause 
uh, osteophyte formations and, uh, and, and spurring and uh, lead to some arthritic conditions. So I'm wondering if you're <clears throat> if aware of that or you incorporate those principles in your recommendations. Well, I, you know, I've never been a huge fan of the inversion tables for exactly that reason, just from a musculoskeletal point of view, you know, having your body hanging on those ligaments, your knees and your ankles and your spine, it just doesn't seem, you know, very effective. You know, that said, uh, uh, Iyengar, one of the greatest yoga teachers, uh, used to always say that, that uh, he brought Iyengar yoga into America, one of the biggest kinds of yoga we have. And his number one posture that he, he I think he died, he was like 95 years old. He said the number one posture that helped me stay healthy my entire life was inverted postures, headstands. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that getting inverted is great for the lymphatic system, but hanging from those ligaments, and maybe that's why this doctor realized that there's a certain amount that's good, a certain okay. too much might be too, might be harmful. So it's, uh, I guess it's the way that you do it. So if you're doing it like yoga, which is a, which is a 5,000 year old practice and a strong suggestion that is probably useful, uh, then it is okay. But if you're hanging upside down, then it's not, not as good. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of people over the years, you know, just have ligament laxity as a result of hanging on those knee, those knee ligaments really scare me. You know, the knees are so vulnerable as we age anyway. And, and, uh, so getting them stretched out. I, you know, I, I think we have to be, again, with the body, kind and gentle, with the intestinal tract, kind and gentle. And that's what we tend not to do in our culture. We just clobber everything with really harsh extracts of herbs or harsh, you know, uh, medications that we have no sense of what it does to the subtle aspects of the body. And the microbes are so subtle, we can't even see them, but they run the show, really, don't they? Absolutely. Now, another, uh, well, one passion that I've really uh, been braced recently is photobiology or in incorporating the judicious use of light in, to optimize your biology. And uh, sort of an aspect of that that you discuss in your book is the sun salutation, which I think is just incredible. And, and it's really one of my goals for this year to integrate that into my practice. But the key is that you're actually getting outside. You could do it inside, of course, but it's kind of hard if you're in Boulder to do it this time of year. But, you, but ideally, you do it outside in the morning when you're facing the sun. And you do this. So why don't you comment on that and, and describe how that integrates into this whole system? Well, you know, one of the things about the sun salutation that I really love is that when you, it's a series of flexion and extension postures. And as you inhale, going up and back, you breathe in and the diaphragm pulls down, but your rib cage is going up and back. And this area right here is where most people have trouble because the rib cage gets tight because we hold on for dear life emotionally. The stomach is usually problematic as a result of poor bile flow. So we have to really open this area up, which helps us digest. And the sun salutation is like taking an accordion to this part of your body and squishing it together and stretching it out and squishing it. It exercises that like nothing else. And then, of course, doing it outside with the early morning sun rays is just an absolute way to get in Ayurvedic medicine. There's they're very much into the subtle aspects of, of life. And as we know, there's not really much vitamin D in that morning sun, but there's a lot of life force in that sun that feeds us in, 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 in subtle ways that I don't even know that we actually know scientifically yet and have been able to measure that. But it is, um, it is a, a, a very, very special, you probably know, uh, maybe have more insight in that. Well, early in the morning, you're going to get more of the blue light and the blue light in general is something you want to avoid. 
because it can it centrally it hits the retinal pigmented epithelium and causes reactive oxygen species and generates free radicals. And you, normally we can perceive free radicals as dangerous, but in the appropriate quantities, they're very crucial. And and in the especially in the early morning, they help stimulate the ultimate production of melatonin in the pineal gland. But it's not just blue light alone. And if some and what concerns me is people use these sad lights that are just high intensity blue light only, and that's going to be counterproductive because the beauty of sunlight is that it only, ha especially early in the morning, not only has the blue, but it has the red and the near infrared, which balances it out and that causes restoration, regeneration, repair. Right. So it's that balance that does that, that performs the magic. And it's literally it's exposure to this natural, not digital artificial light that uh, really induces health and per helps prevent disease. Another reason why you live in Florida now, I, I imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I was actually initially motivated by my uh, girlfriend who uh, moved down here, but uh, I, I probably would have been down here another three or four years later if I kind of figured it out because it's really, to me, the ultimate conclusion that if you really want to seek optimal health and, and utilize your environment as much as possible is really difficult to do in most of the U.S. I mean, you really got to be pretty much subtropical to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm staring at, at about a foot of snow right now as I look out the window and, uh, you know, it's very true. And as we get older, you know, that's why a lot of people retire in Florida. You know, the body, um, in Ayurvedic medicine, they, they talk about this time of life where the body begins to dry out, becomes more governed by air. And when you live in a cold, dry place and your body is becoming more cold and more dry, and God forbid you're eating cold and dry foods and not warm, unctuous foods, you can really get yourself, you can accelerate the imbalance or accelerate the aging process, but what you're doing, going to a warm place where you antidote those tendencies that are going to happen to all of us. We all tend to get older and dry out, but we can antidote those tendencies with the foods we eat and the kind of lifestyle we lead, but also the place we live, which I think is a brilliant strategy. I should, I should move next door. Yeah, yeah, we'll welcome you down here. There's no question. But the, the other key component is it allows me to get outside and shed most of my clothes, I would say 90% of the year or more, and be able to walk for a few miles. Again, that movement and moving the lymphatics, improving digestion. Yeah. So uh, it, it is really, it's just something I cherish and feel very privileged to have the opportunity to do every day. And, spend, and I do the walking on the beach. So it's right next to the ocean. You get additional benefits of grounding. But getting back to the sun salutation, um, I'm wondering, you had mentioned improving the uh, range of motion in the, the rib cage, but I'm also wondering about the upper thoracics because it seems to me that that would also improve it. And, and also is, is the, I believe it's the majority of people who just cannot extend the thoracics back far enough. And they, it's, it's, it's a result of engaging this forward flexion posture all the time. Completely. And we sit and we, we sit like this and we sit all day. We Maybe we, we work out for an hour here, but the rest of the time we're driving to work, driving home from work or sitting in our office. And as a result, we're, we find ourselves really hunched over. And when you breathe through the nose during these postures, the air goes through these turbinates in your nose that drive the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs. If you just breathe in your mouth, you just get the upper chest. And when you get the, when you get the full extension, it actually helps to, when you full, when you, when you bring the air all the way into the lower lobes of your lungs, you fill up all five lobes of your lungs. And that opens up your rib cage. And then when you breathe deeper, the diaphragm is contracting and pulling down as you're going back and up and back. And that opens up and extends that rib cage and it brings those shoulders back so your head is not forward and then going like that, which is really bad for the blood vessels going into your head. 
and 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 it keeps this rib cage open. It's it, I put that in the book because because so because of this chronic. When I treat patients, I see them all the time. And here's how you tell. So I call it the the tummy tender test. You take your thumb and you stick it underneath your rib cage, and you t- go all the way across with your other hand, just like this, pushing underneath the rib cage with your thumb and drive it in there. And if it's sore or tender or firm or hard you probably have some adhesions or some scar tissue or some, some either lymphatic congestion, some bile duct flow issues. Those bile ducts are tiny pencil-like ducts and they're easily congested. And we have to get that to open up and the sun salutation is a phenomenal way to kind of open it up. I actually even love using a, a hand, a, like a vibrator massager right on these upper organs and vibrate them and really increase blood supply in this area. You cannot get enough blood supply in that area because it's such an area of tension. Because like you said, we sit, we crunch over, we don't breathe deeply, and this stays, you know, relatively, you know, passive most of the day. So are you doing the sun salutation every day? I do the sun salutation before and almost after every workout. I do for sure. Wow. I love it. I, I really do it. And, and, and I nasal why, breathe. Why do you do it before the workout? I mean, as opposed to doing it in the morning. Um, in the morning, I've got six children. Uh, my my mornings are are you know it's not my morning. I get to sit down and relax and meditate. It's it's a little different around my house. <laughs> That's a good reason. You have to be practical. Yeah, Pragmatic. exactly. Yeah, excellent. So, are there any other yoga poses that you think would be wise for everyone? It seems to me, unless you have some type of disability or uh, confined to a wheelchair or something, that most everyone should would be a wise to integrate this into their daily movement pattern. Mm-hmm. But there are any other poses that you... Well, and in the book, I've got two modified versions for people who can't do the full sun salutation. So I really think it's so important, as you do, for people to be able to pull this off. So we have two different, three different versions in the book so people can learn how to, how to do that and make it uh, you know, as effective as possible. And I think one of the other ones that I like is just taking a, a styrofoam roller and you know, putting it on the ground underneath your back and lie and arch your back over that. So you're actually getting that, like you said, that extension of the rib cage. Because that extension of the rib cage opens up the, the rib cage lymphatics and actually separates your diaphragm from your stomach and your digestive organs, which is really, really critical. And then you just lie there, put your arms over your head and breathe deeply through your nose for five or 10 minutes. And it's really, really relaxing. And it's very passive, but very, very effective. Excellent. So. Uh... So those are the two ones. And actually, uh, there's a number of different rollers but uh, that you can get out there. But the, some was with the hard shell and these, these knobs on it can actually dig into and, and actually cause Im- improvement in the, the range of motion, your, the spinal cord, spinal segment. So that would be another thing. And they tend to, the foam rollers, just the traditional ones tend to break down over time. So they, these hold up a little better. They do. And for when you're rolling your, your, your IT bands and your legs, you need something a little bit more firm, but you know, for, for getting your, your rib cage to open up an arch over, just arching, it, 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 any kind of foam roller work, and even a bolus uh, will actually where anything will get that, that back to open up and you lie there in a relaxed space. Some people have to kind of build up to a full six inch foam roller. It can be a lot for people who are getting more hunched over. So, you know, the baby steps, but you will be blown away by how quickly you get that elastic, elasticity and flexibility back. Also wanted to mention that uh, I, I addressed the con- potential perceived conflict between 
what I've written in the past and what you're promoting in your new book, Eat Wheat, but also the other physician who's written some popular books recently is David Perlmutter, and he wrote the book Grain Brain and a few books after that. And uh, actually, one might think that he would be in conflict with what you're stating, but he actually interviewed you recently and, and I suspect believes in a lot of what you're stating in the book. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I was really delighted to hear that David is an old friend of mine as well. And he was delighted to have this debate. And I was so delighted to have that you would, were willing to have this debate. I really feel like this, this issue of wheat or non-wheat or grain or non-wheat really just needs to be talked about in an open forum. People can hear the science on both sides because there is science suggesting that wheat, whole wheat, not refined wheat, is actually quite beneficial. And there's science that says that it could be risky and dangerous. And we need to understand it more. And the only way to do that is with dialogue. And and David Perlmutter was great. I think he totally got the idea that it is the digestive breakdown. And his contention was, stop eating wheat because it's hard to digest. And, I'm, and my contention was, okay, but let's fix the digestive system. And then maybe we can eat really good wheat and not take the grains out of our diet, which is exactly what you're saying. And I think it's really great to see us all coming on board with the same philosophy. And, you know, I... I've been, you know, for 30 years, been helping people reboot digestion and go from not being able to eat wheat or dairy to be able to eat wheat and dairy. So I know it's a very, very possible and people can pull this off. And I also know when they do that, their ability to detoxify this crazy world we live in is significantly enhanced. And that we don't want to go without. We don't want to go without ability to detoxify our body naturally. Doing a detox is a very important piece of the puzzle as well. But we have a natural detoxifying system that we have to optimize and on a regular basis, and that comes from rebooting digestive strength. Terrific. Well, <clears throat> are there any other uh, recommendations or uh, points that you'd like to make? Well, the only other thing that is, which we touched on a little bit, is you know they call it wheat belly, and I really believe the word should be sugar belly, uh, mm-hmm. because it's really you know a lot of the the, the science and that have been used to to blame wheat on uh, Alzheimer's and cognitive decline was the fact that wheat has a high glycemic index. Um, but whole wheat has been shown in many studies to reduce cognitive decline and, and protect against Alzheimer's uh, and has a much lower glycemic index. So, so I think that the, real, the biggest thing that we can do in addition to getting rid of processed foods, eat organically, is to really, really look at the amount of sugar that we're eating in our diet and get that out of our diet the very, very best we can. Um, you know... Sweet taste, we have one taste bud for sweet, and we have 300 taste buds for bitter. All the bitter foods and poisonous foods we tried to figure out after millions of years, but sweet was always good. We didn't need any more taste buds for that. From the first taste of mother's milk, sweet was good. It's been good for millions of years. It's still good. People are addicted to that taste, and we can break that addiction by actually bringing the body back into balance. And it would, one of the ancient principles from that perspective is to have all six tastes with each meal, sweet, sour, salt, pungent, bitter, and astringent. And each of these tastes provide a different type of emotional support. So we, we leave the meal emotionally stable and balanced, not leaving the meal craving a dessert um, because the meal provided you with all these six tastes and therefore fed you emotionally in a complete and balanced way. So, so balanced meals... Uh, is really important. And that's where I, I do have a little issue with the paleo diet because if you talk to anthropologists, the, 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 the Harvard anthropologists will tell you that the paleolithic people didn't eat just meat and vegetables. They definitely had grains and tubers and they had carbohydrates in their diet. And I also agree with you, we have to first reset fat burning as a, as a primary source of fuel. Once we do that, because you can't just eat a bunch of fatty foods 
and then eat a bunch of car- good, healthy carbohydrates, it's too much calorie, too much, too much uh, fuel, and we're going to store that fuel as fat. So we have to reset function first, and then we can get back to being balanced. So, and that starts with rebooting digestive strength. Yes, indeed. The devil's in the details. And you have many details in your book, uh, including loads of very specific information on the types of wheat to purchase and where to purchase them. And if you decide to make your own bread. And interestingly, I just upgraded my kitchen. I have now a steam convection oven, which uh, is the best way to if you're going to bake bread, the best way to bake it is what they say. So are you going to are you going to start baking bread? Actually, have I tried it a little bit? Yeah. Nice. So, but it's you know the problem with the the, the wheat that you recommend is that um, you know I've I've gotten to the point where I've been burning I've been burning fat for a year have have regained that ability so you know it's 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 appropriate for me to do this especially in times when you're doing strength training so uh, but that the bread is so dense and thick and it's like you know we're in the process now of trying to refine the recipe to to, to get it and, it and interestingly too what you mentioned in your book is that if you, certain types of sourdough bread when you ferment it they're basically are, are gluten-free because the microbes very similar to ones in yogurt digest all the sugar it's amazing right and they actually gave yeah. some of that gluten-free bread to people in who are celiac and there was no intestinal inflammation in fact in studies that shows it actually reduces inflammation uh, significantly. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of information about wheat and, and baking bread and eating bread in an old fashioned traditional way that we've lost. And if we get that back, I think we can begin to break bread again in a proper way, uh, and not start taking things out of our diet as the solution. Cause it, as you know, it, it, you, that's not a solution. That's a symptomatic relief agent, you know, a way of getting rid of symptoms, but doesn't really address the problem. All right. Well, thank you for all your tremendous work. And I uh, heartily recommend picking up a copy of your book if you're any at all interested in reintroducing wheat into your diet. Uh, your book will give you the specific detailed guidelines on how to do it properly so that you will not worsen your health, but you're actually your health will increase. Well, thank you, Dr. Murko. It's a pleasure to see you again. Okay. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.